Hi, everyone. Welcome to This Week in EdTech for January 21st, 2022. It's been another big week for education in EdTech as we ramp into the 2022 sprint. As always on This Week in EdTech, we're going to go through our big five headlines of the week, play a short game, and then we're going to do something a little different today. We actually have a special live in-studio audience with the on-deck EdTech Fellowship. It's an amazing group of EdTech insiders and leaders. So if you want to learn more about that, it's at beyonddeck.com. And you're going to see here some questions from some great EdTech folks at the end of this episode. But before we get started this week, we had Martin Luther King Day. And in honor of the man himself, we wanted to share two great quotes that inspire us. So I'm going to start with the first quote. The function of education, therefore, is to teach one to think intensively and critically. But education which stops with efficiency may prove the greatest menace to society. Yeah. And uh, one more great MLK quote from ed- about education. Quote, everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. So inspiring. With that, we're going to kick off our headlines today. First, from the higher education desk, I've got a story and Alex has a story. On higher ed, there's a lawsuit that is alleging price fixing for 16 elite colleges, including Yale, MIT, Caltech, Brown, Duke, etc., It comes down to need-blind admissions. Is it need-blind or is it not? And I learned that colleges and universities in America have an antitrust exemption when it comes to price. So think about Major League Baseball or NFL having antitrust exemptions around labor contracts. Same with what you pay for your schooling. But the kind of caveat with that is it needs to be need blind. Your price should not be dependent on your ability to pay. And this lawsuit has shown that there's quite a variety of holes in that policy at these universities. And ultimately, win or lose for this case, we're seeing a trend that universities are losing the public debate about the cost of college and its ROI. And for our second higher ed story, Alex, and for our second higher ed story, we wanted to highlight a really interesting article from the great ed tech journalist and writer, Phil Hill. Phil Hill follows very closely about sort of enrollment trends over the years. And what he did this week was something super interesting is he took the nonprofit four-year sector, and which if you look at the entire sector, it's been flat, but it's been growing slightly and then slightly flat over the last year. But what he did is he took out some outliers, which are the mega size online universities, Western Governors University, Southern New Hampshire University, and Liberty University. And when you take out those giant outliers, it's actually shrinking. The nonprofit four-year university space has actually been shrinking since 2015. It's a really interesting finding that really it takes a takes a sort of data data nerd like Phil Hill to really put this together and he's opened it up as a as an open source chart, it's really worth looking at because you start to see in very stark terms what is sort of coming our way in terms of college admissions. We know there's a demographic problem. We know there's uh, been some loss of faith with a lot of students that that college is the only way to advance in your career, but you can really see it. So I highly recommend it. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting finding. What do you think, Ben? 
Yeah, I mean, the question that's coming up for me is, can existing brick and mortar universities pivot in a way that addresses both these scandals around the cost and the ROI and this kind of incredible opportunity for virtual learning? And, you know, when you take out the Western governors of the world, it shows that this market pie is not being addressed by the the brick and mortar schools. So it makes me more skeptical about their ability to pivot and meet this audience. So overall demand actually seems really high for post-secondary, but ability to serve is really shifting. Yeah. Disproportionately going to colleges that address adult learners, working learners, parents as learners. uh, I think there's just, it's another nail in the coffin of the idea of the traditional learner being the only major important demographic in higher ed. So Ben, what's our next headline? All right. So hot off the presses from our gaming desk, Microsoft is paying $68.7 billion in cash for Activision Blizzard. One, like, wow, $68.7 billion is a lot of money. And in their press release, they talk about not only advancing their gaming division, but this being a building block for the metaverse. And, you know, as you've heard on this podcast before, we're really interested and excited about the metaverse and that intersection with education. And we're also excited about gaming and the intersection with education. And I think this could be a really important move. I also will say, backstory, Activision has been under a lot of heat with their CEO under fire for sexual harassment, and their kind of overall year-to-year performance has been up and down. So Microsoft, which many don't realize, is actually quite a big player in K-12 and higher ed enterprise sales. Their consumer gaming business is definitely going to get a boost here, but the ability for them to cross over is leagues ahead of Activision's ability. And so $68.7 billion tells you, one, this is a huge move. But two, Metaverse is coming. It's coming fast. And this is not just a Facebook poorly planned ad campaign. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, you know, I think Microsoft is sort of the, the secret member of that FANG group of giant ed tech companies or giant tech companies that actually really do have some influence over education. And Microsoft, when Microsoft bought Minecraft a few years ago, one of the first things it started to do with it is actually build out an education product around it, which it offers to K-12 schools. This purchase gives them Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, enormous gaming properties, as well as enormous virtual worlds literally built in the Unreal and the Unity engines that can be used in a metaverse capacity. So you can imagine a future world where students learning about World War II learn it from within Call of Duty. <laughs> and it's it's really not that strange a thing to imagine. That's exactly what Microsoft did with Minecraft. It made it, you know, it, it allowed students to build pyramids in Minecraft and study Egypt or build models of a models of history, imagine that in a top AAA gaming world. It's a pretty exciting move, and I think we should all keep our eye on what Microsoft starts to say about how this purchase may play into its future education plans. Yeah, it's just a reminder, too, that Google and Microsoft are the two largest edtech companies in the world. We don't think of it that way, but in terms of penetration in terms of dollars, in terms of reach and products, we should be watching those. 
So talking about the biggest companies in the world moving to one of the biggest markets in the world, India continues to pop up regularly on this podcast in our news. Two big movements, one that probably should throw some caution on the Indian market and another that only shows the enthusiasm. First is that India is cracking down on OPM providers in higher education from the Times of India, but also news out of the UK. There's reports about government basically telling universities that they are not allowed to partner with for-profit entities to offer their courses online under their kind of licensure and certification. And so what it could be is that they still partner, but it is under separate or independent licensure, or it could be that the universities themselves launch rival edtech offerings that are owned by them and are nonprofit. This raises the specter of what's happened in China in terms of that interplay between government and edtech regulation. But on the other side of the coin, uh, LEED, which is an edtech unicorn, basically got a huge investment that doubled its valuation from 500 million to a billion. Just nine months ago, it was 500 million. They have a K-12 product that helps learners drive their own learning and, and growth. But you know, it is a question about how hot the India market is. They are only running at an $80 million revenue run rate. What's your take on what's going on in India, Alex? And I'm particularly interested on the OPM side with your experience there, but also like on, on this funding side. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of the funding, I think with China cracking down in this way that I think really put an enormous chill on investment there and people just don't know what to make of the Chinese edtech market, that puts even more emphasis on India as by far the largest education market on earth. It's a relatively unregulated market compared to other countries. It's a market that, you know, India really cares about education. They, uh, parents spend a lot of money on their children's education. The tests there are enormously determinative of students' lives. So I think everybody in the ed tech investment space is just hungry to find the next Indian mega company, the next Baiju's. And they're looking at companies like Lead that are growing fast that maybe are not actually quite as deserving of that valuation yet, given their business metrics. But they're saying, we want to get on a rocket ship as it's rising. And anybody who's really getting traction in the Indian market is somebody we need to keep our eyes on. So I think VCs are in a little bit of a uh, arms race, as you've said, Ben, You know, to get the right investments in the right place as the Indian ed tech market just sort of explodes. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think this is a learning moment for our audience. Like one, if you're valued at a billion dollars, that doesn't mean someone's willing to pay you a billion dollars in cash for your entire company. That basically means that people are willing to fund you at a certain amount of value for your entire company, but often you have to grow into that value. So the idea that they would increase from 500 to a billion in just nine months, that's not quite what's happening. And number two is there's an arms race, as you mentioned, in India, and GSV is coming to play. And what we've seen is Owl is probably the biggest tech player in India right now. And kudos to them for being on the early side, Ian and Amit. But I think GSV is making a statement here that they're willing to go big in India. And then the third is, this just goes to show how important total addressable market is and a venture capitalist 
investment calculus. If the TAM is huge, it really changes the numbers and the ball game. If your TAM is small, even if your revenue is good, it doesn't become like a home run hit possibility. So I just think it's a good learning moment for our space. And anyone who cares about ed tech, you need to be paying, paying attention and learning more about India. And also proper caveat, Alex and I are not experts on the Indian market. Hopefully we can get a guest who can help us deep dive, but we are learners and we are paying full attention to India. So I'm going to flip it over to you on headlines number four, our finance beat. Yeah, and our finance beat, we're just going to do a quick ping pong of some really interesting things that happened in EdTech funding and acquisitions this week. First, GSV, we just talked about, released what they call their Elite 200. That's 200 EdTech companies that are on the rise within a sort of, and it w- which will then do a pitch competition at the ASU GSV conference. If you click on that it, uh, that link in the show notes, if you want to see some EdTech companies that are sort of small, but have some attention being paid to them right now. How about you, Ben? First off, I've got MyTutor acquiring FireTech in the UK. Let the coding bootcamp rollups begin for 2022. Basically, anyone who wants to be a player in this space needs to have a broad course offering, and that's what MyTutor is going for. Over to you, Alex. Yeah. So one that caught my eye, it's a relatively small round, but an an Egyptian ed tech company called Orcus raised about $2 million in a pre-series A. And, you know, the reason this sort of caught my eye is there's really starting to be some interesting traction in what they call the rest of the world, non-India, China, US, Europe markets. And it's nice to see some rounds getting a little bit bigger and, and getting some traction in an area where the need is enormous and there's not that much attention, which is Africa. On a related note, uh, something passed my desk this week about a $10 million dedicated ed tech fund from a firm called Future Africa that's actively attempting to jumpstart investment on the continent. And their explicit goal is to make Africa the biggest TAM for ed tech. Obviously, that would not happen with any individual country, even Nigeria, which is the most population. But if you think of Africa, uh, African education writ large, there is a lot of underserved students and workforce development there. So I'm keeping my eye on Africa. What about you, Ben? As you know, I'm watching LATAM and in LATAM, UBITS snagged a $25 million funding round. They're the corporate Netflix for corporate training. One, I always laugh when anyone is the, the Netflix of or the Uber of, but when you dive into the numbers, their growth is astounding. And what it shows is that not only is the K-12 sector in Latin America leaping forward, leveraging ed tech, also the corporate side is really pushing forward. And we basically just in our around the world did India, you know, Nigeria and Africa writ large. And this is based in Bogota, Colombia. I think what we're seeing is that a lot of the innovative applications for ed tech tools are happening in markets where the kind of in-person infrastructure has never existed. And it just allows them to leap forward in meaningful and massive ways. Yeah. And I think, you know, frankly, the the COVID pandemic has also accelerated ed tech innovation in some of these countries because it's proven that students or enough students have access to internet services, to phones, to the type of infrastructure that can make education work, even though there, I think there have been doubts about that in the past. One more headline hot off the presses, Handshake, one of the leading edtech startups that actually does job networking for recent college graduates, 
just got a major round of funding today, $200 million round from Kochu Management and Valiant Peregrine with a number of different investors behind Canshake as well at a valuation of $3.5 billion. That is a very serious increase in valuation for Handshake. So that's an exciting news item as well. Ben, what's our final headline? Well, we've been updating you every week on what's going on with COVID and specifically the labor shortage. Chad Alderman has a new piece. He's from the Edunomics Lab at Georgetown University. So first, like props to you, man. Edunomics Lab, how cool is that? (laughs) But ultimately, he's looking at data from districts and he's saying there is not a big quit in education. Schools have specific labor challenges, but this overall narrative he's challenging of teachers dropping out. I think two caveats on this. One is the data is not very up to date. This is from 2018 to November 2021. So ultimately, what's really happening right now is hard to ascertain because most districts aren't sharing that data for this school year. Um, Number two is you have a lot of incentives for tenured teachers to hang around and continue to push through. It's really the pipeline of new talent, of substitute teachers, paraprofessionals, and special ed that are really showing the fracturing. And Chad calls that out. But I do think that it's important, you know, we paint some broad brushstrokes about these crises. But actually, when you get down into it, there's pockets and segments where for example, special ed, eight times the vacancy rate of all other. So if we don't have a plan to address those specific pockets, I also heard the other day that physics teachers, something like a 20% vacancy rate, these are impossible to solve by just creating more of a human pipeline. We're going to have to understand how ed tech can step in and help accelerate these gaps in labor. That's from the, the K-12 desk. Alex, anything before from you before we go to our games? No, I just wanted to add, I, I couldn't agree more. Even, you know, despite the findings here that there's no big quit, I predict we are going to be hearing about the teacher shortages in K-12 schools, including specialists like special ed teachers for years. And it's going to be a mainstay of ed tech conversations, ed tech conferences. There's really going to be a shift towards how can we fill gaps in labor? There's no way that teachers in these two years of the pandemic are going to stay in the classroom at the same numbers they they have been. And we've covered this other weeks. No, let's move on to our game. So this week's game is called What's the Word? And Alex and I get to fill in the blank on some sentences from today's headlines. I'll go with the first one. EdTech watchers should be blank about all the large rounds going to Indian companies. What's your word, Alex? I think they should be cautiously optimistic. I think the Indian EdTech system is definitely growing. There's a lot of hunger for the products, and there's a lot of amazing entrepreneurs doing great things there. But there may be a little bit of overheating as well, just because, again, with China dropping off the board, I think people are just desperate for Indian EdTech to work. What's your word? Humble is the word that I would use. EdTech watchers should be humble. Ultimately, two things. One is we don't know how this market is going to play out. And so how other markets have behaved is really only indicative signal. But if we've learned anything about education is that there are so many market-specific dynamics. And number two is there's so much to learn from what's happening in India. 
that it will play out in other markets as well, the trends that we're seeing there. And so bring that humility. All right, number two, Alex. Number two is university presidents should feel blank given the barrage of recent negative headlines about legacy higher ed. All right, I'm going to go with frustrated. I think the majority of university presidents are ready to pivot. They're ready to go for these new markets. They're watching Western governors. They're thinking about scaling their impact. And they are struggling to change their organizations fast enough to meet this need. What about you? Yeah, I'm going to go even I'm going to go even harder there and I say university presidents should feel frantic, <laughs> maybe anxious given the barrage of negative recent headlines about legacy higher ed. And the reason I say that is universities have a well-earned reputation for not moving that quickly, for not being able to change business models or lower prices or address different student markets. And I think that if you're behind now, and you're looking at these negative headlines about demographics, about uh, you know price fixing, about uh, students wanting to do different things rather than go to school and, and signing up in lower numbers than ever. I think you should be ringing the alarm bell within your university that you need a strategy and that some of the traditional politics of faculty senates that want to keep the status quo really need to be removed. I look at leaders like Michael Crow at ASU, Paul LeBlanc at Southern New Hampshire, and what they've really done is reorganized the entire institution around innovation and around serving their learners directly and moved a lot of things out of the way to make that happen. To start that now from scratch, it it might take a while. What's All right, our next headline? Three, after the yeah. COVID pandemic subsides, the future of remote and hybrid learning is blank. So I would say after the COVID pandemic subsides, the future of remote and hybrid learning is bright. I'm very bullish on that uh, the COVID pandemic is not just going to be a blip in our memory uh, in terms of education. I think it's going to be an inflection point when ed tech and remote education became mainstreamed by force, basically. How about you, Ben? I think my word is going to be inequitable. I originally was thinking essential. You know, we've got to figure it out. I'm really worried about the access and quality of delivery and the variability across different income ranges, geographies, and so on. And so I really worry that remote and hybrid learning will be a tool for rapid gains in more affluent areas. And it could be either underutilized or poorly implemented in places that are serving lower income students. So hopefully we can change that around. Hopefully the word is essential, but I would say today it looks inequitable. Number four, Alex. 10 years from now, when people look back at the emerging trends in the 2022 EdTech landscape, they will describe this year as blank. I'm going to go with Dowlicious. I think that 2022 is the year that we deconstruct organizational structures in education and the beginning of educators kind of owning the work product and learners owning the learning organizations. I am skeptic when it comes to crypto and I am a bullish when it comes to community DAOs. What about you, Alex? Yeah, so I I struggled between two different answers here, but my final answer is 10 years from now, when people look back at the emerging trends, they will describe this year as the year of the teacher creator. What I mean by that is that I think the combination of the teacher shortages, the 
rise in homeschooling, the changes in how people sort of look to learn, that they're looking to learn from practitioners, is creating this huge wave of companies and individuals who are trying to teach learners directly what they know from wherever they are. They may be an influencer. They may be a within a practitioner within a company. They may be a retired teacher. They may be teaching something that's outside of their subject that they're not technically certified to teach. But I think we're. I just think we're getting to a place where the idea of a traditional teacher being the only people that we can learn from is going to basically die fully this year. And you're going to see a whole range of people jumping in as teachers or as educators that we we wouldn't have defined as educators in the past. How about our last one? Last one in honor of Martin Luther King, those who care the most about closing gaps in educational equity should be focusing their attention on blank. Yeah, so my answer to this is about is alternative pathways. And it may be a slightly controversial, but I believe that, you know, all of the political discussion about free community college and all of these plans that have sort of hit the skids in in all the political mess that we're dealing with, I think what's going to pan out from some of this is the idea of students from underrepresented backgrounds or from disadvantages, socioeconomic disadvantages, when they look at the price tags of state schools they look at the price tags of private schools, and then they look at some of the offerings that are out there, the lower cost alternatives online, the programs, apprenticeships, the programs being offered by companies. The difference is so stark in terms of the time commitment, the value for your hour and the price that I think you know we just have to make sure that there's pathways for shorter colleges. And, and you know, the rise of Southern New Hampshire and Western governors, I think, is also a testament to that, right? Colleges that can actually adapt and make their own sort of alternative pathways are going to succeed in huge numbers, and colleges that don't adapt are not going to be addressing inequity. How about you, Ben? Yeah, for those who care about closing gaps in educational equity, I think they should focus their attention on labor. There's a great article in EdSurge just this week around reconstructing and reimagining the teacher role. Educators are essential to education, and I think we know what AI, what tech can do. There's no replacement for a great teacher who cares for children, creates a great learning environment, and supports learners in their journey. But the job as it is today is undoable and unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And so how might we reimagine that role as one of the key building blocks of delivering a great education to every child? I'm always buoyed by the fact that we have so many great teachers in every school in America. We're really just needing to activate them and take things off their plate that maybe technology or centralized services could do. And so I think that's a moment that we're in and we'll be learning from other markets that figure out how to do that faster than we do in the U.S. That's a great answer. So with that, we're going to move on to our live question session where we take live questions from the OnDeck EdTech Fellowship community. What is our first question? This is Jesse Silberberg. I used to lead the coaching and talent development team at Minerva and currently work as an independent consultant for startups, universities, and foundations on projects that advance learner-centric approaches in higher ed and lifelong learning. I'm curious what insights we can gain when thinking about the two higher ed headlines side by side. We have these quote unquote elite universities who not only have hard caps on enrollment, but are also potentially 
further constraining access based on students' ability to pay through price fixing? What can and should these institutions learn from the WGUs of the world who are driving overall four-year enrollment trends? What steps should they take in their direction? Here's my take on this, and it's going to be this is going to be a little bit of a bomb throwing take. Just want to throw it out there. I think the first elite college that actually embraces a WGU, SNHU, Purdue model of faster, with support, online, significantly cheaper, you only pay for what you actually do is going to completely win. <laughs> I think they're going to com- they're going to really really topple a lot of the prevailing assumptions about elite education. I think if you look at what happened in some of the other online movements, the other edtech movements, the first mover advantage is very big if you're willing to really go out there and do something different. And I think if if I'm Dartmouth right now, Right. And I know that I, if I could offer a fully online degree for $10,000, a bachelor's, I'm going to steal so many amazing students from every other Ivy, from every other top 50 school. I'll be, I'll have my completely made choice about who, who I can let in. If I'd like it, I'll get a, underrepresented communities. I, they'll run the table and everybody else will not even know what to do. And I think they think they're locked in this business model where they have to charge 30 grand or more. And maybe they've made deals in the past to charge 30 grand or more because there's no antitrust legislation. But anybody who breaks away and makes a run for it for that student and is able to give them a degree with more prestige than a in a Southern New Hampshire, I think they're going to run the table and I wish they would have the guts to do it. Yeah, on that point, Alex, you know, this is why it's hard for companies with a legacy business to innovate because they'll cannibalize their core business and they have a fixed cost structure with all of their buildings and tenured professors and so on. And so it makes it incredibly hard to fully create that pivot. Where I go is really around aligning the financial incentives and payment models. I'm shocked that income share agreements haven't taken root because you can offer a totally free undergraduate uh, experience if you believe that the upside is a step function for your students. And if they're willing to share in that upside, proportionally, you both win. I think it's the first folks who move towards a free model for a hybrid in-person and online with income share agreements. And Mm -hmm. the reason why I think brick and mortar schools are actually very well positioned for this is that alumni network is actually essential for boosting your income. And they have this leverage point that's beyond the learning that is the alumni network that they could truly monetize with income share agreements. So I would, if I were talking to Dartmouth, I would say, don't blow up your physical infrastructure Make your program a two-by-two program where people can do two years online and two years on campus, Mm. leverage your alumni network, and let's do income share agreements that help you earn your revenue back from the success of your graduates. I hear that, Ben, and I think I've been surprised as well that ISAs have been limited only to sort of boot camps and alternative pathways. That said, I think these types of half measures of two and two, even though that sounds amazing, but two and two are accepting credits from ed tech companies like Outlier or from, you know, being more accepting of 
community college credits. There's there's a lot of things that schools could do to sort of edge towards it. I gotta say, I'm still, I think that the school that has the courage to sort of buck their own alumni, to buck the expectation that there's so much sunk cost into those administrative costs or in, in those giant buildings, I think the school that has the guts to do it is going to run the table. I mean, you, that is what Southern New Hampshire did. They had no no differential advantage when they started this. And they are now one of the top schools in the country by enrollment. I just think that there's there's so much upside in being the one elite university known to really offer value, not just alternative financing, really the whole shebang. They'll have such an advantage that they'll make the money back if they're willing to expand their class size. If you look in the past, Alex, California for a long time was two by two with two years of community college. And then you go UC and California, the UC system is so big that you could imagine just with that total addressable market alone, they could launch more WGU type programs. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. If it is a winner take all first mover advantage, what a great moment for investors to get involved, by the way. Yeah. If it's going to be fragmented and everyone's going to kind of limp in, not an exciting time for attack no. investors. But if you get that Dartmouth going for it big, yeah. there has to be billions of capital to like make that happen. So if you're the president at Dartmouth, give Alex and I a call. We're happy to be your advisor. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We have one final question, which is coming from the chat. When it comes to facilitating education through the metaverse, particularly with Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, what are some of the biggest challenges regarding access and equity? How do we keep systemic inequities in the physical world from replicating themselves in virtual ones? Great question. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting one in that paywall Getting all the way down to the practical level, almost every ed tech entrepreneur and founder is thinking about where the paywall is. Because if the paywall is up front in front of your learning experience, you are inequitable. And if your paywall doesn't exist for the user, but you're trying to do B2B sales, then it is also inequitable in part because school districts purchasing is reflects often the inequities of our systems. So The metaverse question is it, will it be an open and free space where access to the learning is not gated, but where the kind of customization and the modularization is where they monetize, or is it actually functioning in a way of a sorting hat with paywalls and elite institutions persisting on that platform? You know, my skeptical view is that people go where the money is in these platforms, but if we did have players who really thought about equity as a leverage point for differentiation, could they create fundamentally equitable metaverse companies? I think that would be really exciting too. So maybe what we find is that a metaverse escape, we are able to fundamentally lower the cost of delivery and reduce barriers and monetize outside of the learning cycle. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think the only thing I would add to that is when it comes to metaverse, one of the differentiating factors for that particular type of ed tech compared to others is that it requires this additional hardware, at least for now. And that hardware has created this really confusing 
a world here where you have private schools that will buy Oculuses, you know, for their classrooms to do something interesting. You'll have universities, certain universities that'll sort of invest in this and Stanford does a lot of virtual reality stuff, but community colleges or schools with lower budgets or K-12 schools with, with less money per student, that's not the first thing they're going to think of. It's an unproven technology. They don't have the way to do that. So I look at companies like uh, Transfer VR or Mersion or you know companies that are starting to look at the ed tech metaverse space through the lens of actually like training rather than virtual field trips. And I think that might be a route in because obviously there's just an enormously different take on what metaverse education would look like if you're looking at it through a sort of a practical, how do you learn to how to actually do things in the world lens versus a very fanciful, how do you take a sort of trip to ancient Egypt and that's only going to go in the in, in a private school. So it's a little bit of a strange answer because I don't know how it'll play out, but I think people need to figure out how to subsidize the cost of the equipment and then create experiences that don't just cater to sort of a extracurricular in-school activities that actually cater to real needs, especially for workforce development. Well, with that, we're going to thank our studio audience. Thank you, On Deck crew, for coming. The On Deck EdTech Fellowship version two kicks off this month. And uh, thank you, Charlie, for having us. Thank you, Savannah, for organizing this. And thank you to our listeners for listening to This Week in EdTech. We'll be back next week when there's EdTech news. You'll hear analysis from us each week. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com.